Thank you, Vicki. Like Vicki mentioned, that this is the last week in this book um, of Ecclesiastes, last week in this series. We're here at the final chapter, the final chapter and a half. And I know many of you, since this was a, a summer series we did, um, may not have caught all of it. You feel like maybe it's a little been disjointed for you going through this book. I encourage you to at least go back and read the book. And maybe as verses pique your interest, like go back and check out those sermons. This, this series has, I've been um, pleasantly surprised about how, I think, relevant and how um, just, just uh, th- this book just speaks to so much of our life. Not so much just practically for sure, but even just the, the way we feel, the way we go about life and how we feel about life and how we react to things that we can't control and uncertainty. It just feels like every week there was something that it's like, yeah, like that's this week for me. So it's been a very, I think, helpful book. I'm, ho- I'm hoping, hoping that it was helpful uh, for the church at large, but I encourage you to go back and check things out um, in the book if you need to do that. Well, we started this book 16 weeks ago, and we said the first week that this book is arguably the most realistic book in the Bible because it is a wisdom book written by a man, Solomon, who's on the quest to find meaning um, of life. And because it is, it, a wis- it is a wisdom book, it helps us be honest with troubles of life, helps us ask giant questions in life, like, what is the meaning of life? Helps us ask, why is there so much oppression and injustice in the world? How do I find joy? And it's arguably the most relevant book in all the Bible because it shows us why we numb ourselves out and why we choose to distract ourselves and we get depressed quickly. This book is a gift to us in that it helps us live and flourish in the real world, reality. This book doesn't pull any punches. It won't let us play the games of make-believe and making, make, make you believe things are different than they actually are, which is honestly what the church is guilty of in a lot of ways. It's kind of just putting our heads down and not really worrying about what's out there. Well, Solomon is concerned about what's out there because we all have to go live that life. So let me pray for us. And I want to jump into the text. Father, I'm thankful for this book. I'm thankful that the work you've done, I know in me, as I've gone through this book and studied this book and listened to other uh, people preach this book here at Providence Road. And I pray that that as as people have heard the word and read the word and follow along and process and wrestled with it, I pray that that you've brought change, that you will continue to bring change as a result of it. And today, as we finish out the book, I pray that you would change our minds and our hearts and change the way we live when we leave this place today. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to take us back to the beginning of the book, just to kind of book in this. Chapter 1, verse 2, Solomon says this, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, which in this book is is referring to Solomon. Most everyone thinks that. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. A lot of repetition there. Solomon trying to make a point. This word for vanity is the Hebrew word chabel. And and it can be translated in a lot of different ways. But most commentators think in this book, he's translating it like a, a breath or a breeze. It's like a mist or a vapor. It's something that you... You can't. You try to grab it, and it, it slides through your hands. You can't hold on to it. It's it's it uh, appears quickly, and it disappears quickly. It's short lived. This gets at this idea that life is uncertain and complicated, which has been one of Solomon's main um, 
ideas that he's talked about throughout the book. One moment we can be having um, a day where we're experiencing unfathomable heights, and the next day we can have experiencing excruciating pain and lowness. We can be bored one day, and the next day be completely content. Why is that? And to navigate this complex and uncertain life, we need wisdom. That's what Solomon's been trying to help us with all along. We need wisdom. We need to know how to live in this complexity without numbing ourselves or distracting ourselves or just throwing up our hands and becoming depressed because life isn't working out the way we want it to. We need to try to avoid when we come through a hard day and we just want to just drop down in front of the TV and just flip on whatever our favorite show is and just numb out. That happens. We distract ourselves by hitting um, our pleasure drug of choice, whatever that may be. When life doesn't give us those pleasurable experiences, we have to manufacture those. We become perpetually anxious because we're constantly trying to control what's in front of us when life is uncontrollable. That's what we talked about last week. Or we come again, come to the point where we throw our hands up and just think, this is never going to change. Solomon wants to address these things. And I mentioned the first sermon that I was really excited about walking through this book because um, I resonate so much with it. And I think many of you do as well, that maybe you're kind of like a cynic like me. You tend to live your life with a lot of gray tones and shades to it. Like nothing, very, very little, I should say, that Solomon said in this book has been surprising to me. I've been amening a lot. Like, yep, that's the way it feels. Yep, Solomon, you got it right. Yep, I don't understand that, right? I have to fight for joy. I have to fight for, for, to experience hope. I ask the question, what's the point of all this a lot? Like, that's me, and, I, and, and that's how this book is really uh, connected with me in, in a great way as we've walked through it. And now we come to the end of the book, and Solomon is going to add another bookend that we're going to look at today. <clears throat> and we're going to see it in verse 13 of chapter 12. He says this in verse 13. The end of the matter, please wrapping up, All has been heard. Like I've said it all. Fear God and keep his commandments. Two things. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. He's in sum. He's summarizing everything. He's trying to boil it down to 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 some things for us to remember. This is what is called the epilogue of the book. He's trying to cut through everything that he's talked about. He's meandered a lot. A lot, of his, a lot of his conversations and teachings have been very circular, some of it very disjointed and disorganized, but now he's kind of bringing it down to a close. So the question that I think this raises for us this morning is how, how does fearing God and keeping his commandments, how did those two things lead to us living this life in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of pain, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of the, 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 the briefness of life that we encounter. But when we hear the words fear God, I think that can bring a lot of baggage. If you grew up in a hyper-fundamentalist or religious home where the fear of God may have been highlighted above everything else, and in that conversation about the fear of God, you heard a lot about God's power and his wrath and his judgment, which, by the way, all are true. The Bible speaks of all those. But it was an incomplete picture of God. It's an incomplete picture of God. You maybe never heard about God's love, his compassion, his patience with 
sinful human beings. Like understanding all the characteristics of God, like the prophet Isaiah, when he had that vision in Isaiah 6, those of you who know that story, where he has this vision of him in the throne room, and he sees God in all of his glory, for all of who he is, and he says, he's, he's, he's undone. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. His face is down. He's just like, I can't believe I just saw the fullness of God. That is the picture of the fear of God. Our problem when we hear things like fear of God is that the things that in this world that we often fear aren't good. They're for sure not perfect. Maybe they're not even good. Maybe you feared, you had fear in a relationship with your dad or your mom. Or maybe fear with a boss who's not loving and not patient. And sometimes the things we fear are outright evil, like disease and oppression. So when we think of fearing God, when I say fear God, or the scripture tells us that, we got to be careful not to import our definition of how we fear things in this world into what the Bible's actually asking us to do in fearing God. Here's how I would define fear of God. Having a deep respect, reverence, and awe for God in all of his attributes. I'll say it again. Having a deep respect, reverence, and awe for God and all of his attributes. Listen to Psalm 103, 17. It says this, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children. Scripture there mentions steadfast love. This, this kind of underneath that is really his talking about his covenantal love, the, the love that he has for his people. It's patient. It's jealous, it's protective. It's the kind of love that God has for his people. Proverbs 19, 23 says this about fear of God. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Fear of the Lord and satisfaction are directly connected. This is what this proverb is saying, right? Think of satisfaction, right? How's, how are you satisfied in the things you're pursuing? Your pursuit of status and wealth, if that's you. Is that leading to satisfaction? Is bouncing from one relationship group to another friend group to another relationship, is that bringing you satisfaction? Is that sexual sin leaving you satisfied? Is burying your pain and medicating, you with, medicating yourself with substances, is that leaving you satisfied? And hopefully you see by now the answer to those things are no. They don't bring satisfaction. God's word says that the fear of the Lord leads to life and satisfaction. So fearing God is the product, it's the fruit of what happens when we see God for who he is. When we see his love, his compassion, his patience. But also his wrath, his judgment, his power, his holiness. When we see God for all he is, all of those things, it should produce fear in us. And when we fear God, the next thing Solomon says that happens, and this is the order that Solomon's thinking, this is the logic, keeping his commandments flows out of this. Fear God, keep his commandments. Right? Basically everything he's saying can, can be summed up in these two things. So how do we do this? Like how do we navigate this life the way Solomon is asking us to do? And then he drops these two things here at the end of the book. And Solomon has used time and age and 
the, the coming, kind of knowing that death is going to come for all of us eventually. He wants us to, to think about it and then work backwards. Solomon is great at that, and that's what he's going to do here. Let's go back to chapter 11, verse 7. And we're going to look at two things that I think he mentions that help us make the connection between fearing God, keeping his commandments, and just navigating this life that he, um, that Solomon has laid out and been teaching us about. Verse 7, light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice, keep that in mind, rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many, all that comes is vanity. He's still pounding that drum, right? Here's the vanity word again. All is vanity. Here, even at the end of the book. Listen to verse 9. Starts off, rejoice. And he says, oh, young man. So now he's kind of turning his attention to the youth, right? Like, you, you can maybe, if you're in this room, maybe, obviously, you can say, well, that's relative, right? Being young is relative. But obviously, we kind of know in this room who's, who's kind of young and who's old, right? So especially you youngsters in the room, you youths, right? Like, you listen, right? Like, listen to what he's saying here, okay? He's kind of standing from a person who's old, Solomon is, and he's looking back, and he's saying, listen up. He says, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you. There's that kind of idea of joy again. Cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. It's interesting. Verse 10, remove vexation from your heart, and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. There is the word again. So the main thing he wants to hear in these verses is rejoice. Like if you're young, if you're looking at life and you have it all ahead of you, rejoice. Take joy in what God has given you. It's okay. Like take joy in, in, in the things that God has created. Enjoy those things. And I think he mentions this idea of judgment here in verse 9. I think he's so serious about it that he connects that we will be judged for how much joy we took in the things he gave us. And I think that starts with the spirit of thankfulness, being thankful for the blessings God gives us and lean into those things and enjoy them and give him praise for giving us those gifts to enjoy. And he's serious about it. He connects them to judgment. As I was reading in the commentary this week, one commentator talked about um, John Stott, kind of famous Anglican uh, pastor and theologian. And... In his biography, there's this story of his assistant or somebody that was connected close with him. Every day at 4.30 afternoon, in the afternoon, they would bring John Stott a cup of coffee to his chair where he was studying in. And, and they would set it down, and every single day, this assistant uh, said, um, he would say this, I am not worthy. Just very calm. I am not worthy. And this assistant would kind of jokingly say, stop it. Like, you are worthy. It's like, just a cup of coffee, Right? And he would reply to the assistant, you don't have your theology of grace right. I'm just the thin end of the wedge. Basically what John Stott was saying is, like I, I, he was so in touch with kind of his depravity and the fact that his humanness, that he was down to the point where he was thanking God and just like couldn't believe that he was a worthy enough man to enjoy this great tasting cup of coffee every single day. So when it says rejoice, I think it... He's trying to remind us to rejoice in everything. The big things, of course, but also the small things, the things we take for granted. Rejoice in those things. Here's the second thing, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. Starts off with remember. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. There it is again. Kind of speaking to young folk. 
before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. So the second thing here we've seen rejoice, now we get remember. This evil days here, he's just saying death. Death is coming. That's a product of the fall, Genesis 3, right? That's a product of the fall. It's coming, and as it gets closer to death, kind of some, some darkness starts to happen, right? And when you are told to remember something, usually when, you, when somebody asks you, hey, remember this, usually you're either in danger of forgetting it, or it's important enough for that person to remind you to remember. Right? Remember this. So this is what he's saying here. Remember. Remember the things I'm about to tell you. And he says, remember your creator. Like it puts us everything in perspective. When, reali- when we realize we're the creation, he is the creator. He made the world. He knows how it works. He knows what's going to bring us flourishing. He knows what's going to bring us destruction, right? And he's asked us to trust him and follow his ways and his teachings and the wisdom that we find in books like this. And realizing that we won't ever have all the answers. No matter how much we want to have the answers, no matter how much control we want to exert over uncertainty, the world will always have a measure of mystery to us. And we got to remember, hey, we're creation, and he's the creator. And sometimes we just have to leave it at that. Now, beginning in verse 2, he's going to get into some elaborate imagery. Maybe when Vicky was reading this, you're like, what in the world is he talking about here, right? Maybe this is maybe the most in-depth illustration he's used in the whole book. This imagery, and it, there's some kind of deep symbolism here, and it's of, it's of a house and of people, and he really wants us to ponder death and how short life is. So uh, it's going to get dark for a few minutes here, right? We're going to get dark. At the end, it's going to come back up here. So, so go with me here into him kind of giving this symbolism about death, right? It's a good reminder for all of us. Verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, And the day when the keepers of the house, which that's our mind, right? That's our mind, tremble. And the strong men, our body, that's our bodies, are bent. And the grinders, teeth, right, cease because they are few. We lose, tend to lose teeth when we get older, right? Um, Who look through the wind, and who look through windows are dimmed. It's the eyes, right? The the, the windows to the soul, the scripture tells us. Verse 4, and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, which is hearing, and one rises up at the sound of a bird. The older you get, for the most part, the less you usually sleep. And all the, da- and all the daughters of song are brought low. Right? So our vocal cords start to go out and they get weaker. The, we can't, in this, this, this example, singing, right? The, the songs are brought lower. They are, verse 5, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are on the way, are in the way. And maybe this is, most commentators think that maybe this is because as we get older, we're, we feel less confident in physically being able to protect ourselves. So it's just natural to be a little bit more scared of things when you can't protect yourself as much physically. The almond tree blossoms. When it blossoms, it's, it's white and gray. So this is referring to, to, the, to hair, right? The grasshopper drags itself along. That's pitiful. I'm just going to skip that. That's just dragging yourself along, right? And desire fails. And here's the good news, because man is going to his eternal home. As we decay, as our body wastes away, we get older, what God is doing for those who are in him are preparing a different home, preparing an eternal home, preparing a new body that we'll get to enjoy. So we remember, yes, it's reality. Like nobody can escape this reality that Solomon's 
laying out here, but it's all aiming to the next life, the better life, the continuation of life in glory with Jesus for those of us who, are, um, who have faith in him. In verse 6, before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern, all these things are breaking down, and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Once again, he's saying, really it's for everybody, but he's especially trying to get the attention of youth, right? Right? Youth, like remember, this this is where everything is headed here. So stop and remember who you are. Remember who made you. Remember who made the world. Remember who knows how the world works, right? Maybe you've forgotten and you need to repent. That you're young and what you do now matters. It's important, the decisions you make now. I'm not trying to get you all more knotted up. I have a lot of conversations with the college students and recently graduated college students in here um, about, like, what's God's will for my life? What career am I going to choose? Like, I don't think those are the things that that, that Solomon is talking about, right? I think we just trust the sovereignty of God and God's providence in those things. I think what he's saying is the day-in and day-out stuff, like the patterns in your life. Like, if you don't... um, it's, it's never too early to start building a habit of spending time with God and his word. Are you building that habit now? Right? Are you building a habit of being involved in the church, like seeking brothers and sisters in Christ to do life with? Are you serving the church? Are you handling your finances well? Right? Are, you, are you treating the opposite sex as brothers and sisters in Christ? Right? So he's basically saying, don't say in your mind, hey, I'll, I'll do that one day. Or I'll do that when I get to this point in my life. Or I'll do that tomorrow. No, he's saying now. Like now's the time while you're young and you have energy and you have probably more freedom. Right? Do it now. Start now. I think this is what Solomon's trying to tell us. Right? Serve, work, act while you can. I read one person this week say, inside every old person is a young person wondering what happened. Is that true? Those of you who are seasoned... Like I'm, like I'm uh, headed towards. Um, verse 9, he continues on, right? Probably still continuing the same thought, but now he's starting kind of this epilogue, this final part here. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. It, the language gets weird here. Some commentators think that maybe like a scribe or someone in kind of that was near Solomon picked up, picked up the letter here and kind of like did the final things for them because it changes from first person to third person. Although that's happened throughout this book, Solomon's been kind of all over the place. So it could be Solomon or it could be a, a, a close scribe that was near him that knows Solomon really well. Either way, these are Solomon's like words and these are his like thoughts at least. Um, the preacher also taught people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find the words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. I think this is a lesson for all of us to, to remember that we have we, some, some um, sources of knowledge are more important than others, right? Like, obviously, this is the wisest man in the world at the time, so they can say that this is the wisest of the wise. This is, the, this is wisdom personified in writing when Solomon wrote this, but this can also be applied to the Scriptures, to God's Word, to the Bible, right? And talking mentions the word truth here, right? Truth. We shouldn't be afraid to pursue truth, especially those of us who are followers of Jesus. But even if you're in here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to pursue truth. And using phrases like my truth and your truth, like that, those don't make any sense. Because truth is 
outside of ourselves, and we can't determine truth for our own. We can say it's my experience or it's my opinion, right, or my perspective, but we can't say it's my truth because we can't make truth into whatever we want it to be, right? Truth is objective. It's outside of ourselves, and we should all pursue truth. We should pursue it. We should fight for it. We should go after it, right? Have conversations about truth. What is truth? Right? What is, what, how has God designed the world to work? And let's find that truth, right? And that's what he's saying here. Like, focus on the truth and don't get um, kind of distracted by other forms of knowledge out there. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. This was a stick used to kind of move oxen when they were plowing. The wise words are like goads. So not always pleasant experience, right? Like hearing wise words from people like face-to-face or even in the scriptures, right? Um, they're like nails firmly fixed are, cl- are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. Shepherd there is capitalized. Um, it's referring to God. My son, be, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Again, careful what you allow to influence you. Listening to wise words are good for us. They direct us. They challenge us. They could even bring pain that leads to our growth. Those things are good for us, and this all can come be applied to the scriptures, right? As, as, this, as the preacher was writing it, or at least in Ecclesiastes, he was talking about these words in Ecclesiastes, though. The words of Solomon, probably Proverbs 2, as he was writing those as well. So he's told us to fear God and keep his commandments. And we do this by rejoicing in what he has given us, even the small things, and by remembering that he is the creator, who he is, and that we are the creation, And lastly, we come to the why behind these things. Listen to this. Last two verses. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Out of all the things Solomon has told us about about reality and about life, it ends with this. He's landing the plane here. And he says, God will bring everything into judgment. Everything will be judged. This is the why he has put that for at the beginning of verse 14, right? For God, or because God will bring every deed into judgment, right? This is the why behind everything he's told us, is that it's, there's going to be, come a point where there's going to be a judgment, a real judgment. This isn't a hypothetical judgment. This is a symbolic judgment. This is a real judgment. And part of, of treating God as the creator is actually like following along with what reality is. And the reality tells us from the scriptures that there will be a judgment, right? And because there will be a judgment, everything we do matters. It all matters. You may be thinking from this book that Solomon sometimes seems like nothing matters because he can't figure anything out. And what Solomon's actually trying to tell us here is that not that everything is meaningless, we just don't understand all that goes on. But because there's going to be a judgment, everything matters. Everything we do matters. How we use our time matters. How we use our gifts matter. How we, how we engage in relationships, they matter. It all matters. And he says that not, no one's going to get away with anything. All secrets will be laid bare. Now, this idea of judgment is kind of like the fear of God, right? It's one of those things where I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to, I don't want to come and hear about God's judgment. and all. But I guarantee you, we all want someone who is outside of humanity to be able to judge in a holy and righteous way. We want that. Let me give you an illustration to show you from my life why I think you want that. On Friday, I took my two boys to um, the Sam Noble Museum here at OU. And we got there at, 
10 o'clock, right as they were opening, pull up there and um, was parking, and there are spaces on either, all, all sides, so I pull into one, and I get out, get them out, and check my spot in, the, in, in my lines, and I was inside the lines. We're good. So I take them in, about 105 degrees, you know, not pleasant outside, so we're trying to get into the museum, because that's what you do when you know, it feels like that outside. So we, we get in, have a great time, have a great time. And then we're coming back out after we time, you know, and it's 150 now outside because it's later in the day. Um, we get to the passenger side of the car and I, I put the boys in, get them all strapped in, go around to my side and there's a car there. And these car's tires are in my space. They're over the line. So much so that I can only open the door this much to get in. Like, this is terrible, right? This much, like, like, look at it. Like, I ain't getting in there, right? I ain't, it ain't happening. Um, like, parked so close to me. It's like, it's like a joke they're so close. Like, we used to do in high school to each other, right? We had a sweet group of friends who would, like, park so close on both sides so you couldn't drive your car. We were, we were sweet and really kind to each other. Um, but, I, I mean, it was almost a joke they were so close. So I had this moment. And I'm preach. I'm ready. I'm getting ready for this sermon and this particular verse. This idea of wanting judgment. And I, I wanted to bring the wrath down. Right. I'm standing outside, and it's 155 now. The five degree. It's gone up five degrees. Right. And I'm out there, and I'm like, what am I? I mean, I am like boiling right now. And I, the, the boys are in the car, and I'm just like, what do I do? I want to walk back in there, talk to the. The, the person there at the front of the museum, get that license plate. And I want them to call them over the loudspeaker, tell them to walk back out in the 175-degree heat, right? Come back out to the car, right, and move their car so I can get in the car. That's what I want to happen. I want them to feel what I'm feeling right now. But two, two boys in the car, I'm like, this is going to go really downhill if I pull them out of this car. Walk all the way back across the parking lot in 190-degree heat, right? And like... And it, it's going to go bad. So I just, like, I just ate it. Like, that's a baseball term. I just, I just took the ball. I held on to it. I ate it. Like, I said, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to do anything about it. This is what I'm pre- Actually, it just came to mind. I said, you know what? Like, God will get them. God's wrath at the, at the day of judgment, God's wrath will be poured out on I did think that for a second. I, and I repented quickly. I'm like, There's, hey, that's not good. That's not for me to, like, want, want this to happen to someone for this silly thing. Um, but I did think it for a little bit. Um, the point is, that's a silly example. But we want there to be a judgment because we can't do, we can't stop oppression. We can't stop injustices. We can't stop um, the things that happen to us. We can't stop the pain. And either we can take matters into our hands like I was wanting to do, right? And things go just bad because it is just a spiral of human depravity trying to get back at each other. Or we can rest knowing that one day everything's going to be laid, bla- laid bare. God will judge, and he's a righteous and holy judge, and he will judge rightly. Right? That is why we all, I think, deep down want judgment. We want this. We need this. And this is taught from cover to cover in the scriptures, right? Now, because everything matters, the most important decision we make is how we view Jesus. Is how we view Jesus. That's because it's the most important thing that has ever happened in this world. So it does matter what every human being thinks about Jesus. Everyone's going to report in and give an account to the king about our life. 
And when we think about that, sometimes we think he's going to like have this scorecard and like he's going to like have all of our sins on one side and our righteousness on one side. And that's not the way it's going to be, right? We don't co- we're not going to come to the throne of our king trying to prove to ourselves or show up our scorecard about how well we did. No, we're going to come empty-handed and admitting that we can't bring enough to, to reconcile ourselves. We can't, we can't bring enough to be acquitted in that courtroom. We have to have someone else in the courtroom who's there that allows us to be connected back to God. And that person is Jesus. We have to admit that we're coming empty-handed. We've got nothing to offer. We can't stand before God and say, look at my good deeds. That is not going to work because we don't have enough. We're not perfect enough. And this is where the fear in God comes back in. Remember our definition, having a deep respect, reverence, and awe for God and all of his attributes. We allow ourselves to see the attributes of God. It produces reverence and awe for who he is. And we start to see the beauty of Jesus, the holiness of God, how we fall short. God sending his son, God dying for us, standing in in between us and God with his righteousness given to us. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see us in our faulty righteousness, our incomplete righteousness, our sin. He sees Jesus' perfect righteousness. This is why fearing God is so important because we have to see all of who he is, and that drives us to the cross. It drives us to Jesus who knew no sin, became sin, and died on the cross for us right? so that we might be reconciled to God. The cross is where God's love and justice meet. We see that in the cross. We see that in the death of Jesus. So when we are judged, God judges us based on the person and work of Jesus. How do we stand before God and have hope that we're going to be able to spend eternity to him and kind of pass that judgment? We, we point to Jesus. We say, I believe in him. I'm with him. I have faith in him. I love him. I know him. I'm with him. That's all we do, right? We open our hands up and say, it's not me. It's him. And we have to humble ourselves. Again, not because we deserve it, but because he takes pleasure in giving grace to those who are undeserving. We're not saved by keeping the commandments that he's told us, right? We're saved for keeping the commandments. Ephesians 2, um, 10 says, God has prepared good works for us to walk in because we are saved. Not in order to be saved, but because we're in his kingdom, because we're in his family, he's prepared works for us to walk in. Now, what do we do with this? Application. We've seen two things already, right? Rejoicing and remembering. But I want to put it in your laps even a little bit more. I want to get more specific here, right? So I think in this room, there are probably two kinds of people in how you approach and really fear God. And I want you to kind of figure out which one you are. And this is going to be kind of homework, right? And, or, and, and I think everyone can kind of talk about which way they lean even on these, these two. So you have one group of people that you're still enslaved to a works-based relationship with God. Or when you hear that term, fear God, you immediately turn on that treadmill of of works and obedience and start running. You start working. And and if that describes you, if you hear fear God, you're like, I got to keep going. I got to do more. I got to be better. I got to be better. Like if that describes you, you're not seeing the full picture of who God is. You don't understand his grace. You don't understand his love. You don't understand his patience. You need to see a more robust view of who God is. You need to stop and repent of your religious works. Those things don't save you. Those things will not lead to joy. you got to come empty-handed. Say, I've got nothing to offer. I'm humbling myself. I'm coming empty-handed. Save me. 
Shut the treadmill off. Maybe that describes you, or maybe that, even if you've been a Christian for years, that's the way you lean, right? You're always thinking about, have you done enough? Are you comparing yourself to other people? All those things, like, am I being religious, love? Am I doing the right things? Is God the Father pleased with me? Second, the, the other group, when you hear fear God, you just immediately say, I'm out. Like, I'm done with that. I'm not going to be a part of faith or church, judgment, you know, fear. No, I'm, I'm done with that. And now things like that are not a part of your reality. And I would say along with Solomon that, again, trying to define and create your own reality is a really dangerous game. It's a dangerous game to play, to put yourself in the place of the creator and say, I know what's best. I know the way. I know what's going to bring joy. I know what's going to bring happiness. That is a dangerous game to play. You're not smart enough. Neither am I. You're not powerful enough. You don't have enough control to be in that position. So why take that position? You can't determine what is good and evil. Maybe you think you can based off of how you want to live. But again, that's your reality you're creating, and you're putting your, yourself in the place of a creator. That's you. You need to humble yourself and admit you, you can't figure things out. You need to listen to Solomon in this whole book saying the wisest man in the world who had the most resources in the world still is not happy based off the, what the world could give him. He hasn't found it. It's vanity. right? I, I don't know where, and that's, that's Solomon's whole pursuit here. You need to humble yourself and admit you need Jesus. right? And see his beauty and see his grace and see his love. Maybe cut through the baggage you have from maybe the way you were brought up. And so we're going through this series, I, I've had some conversations, and I actually discovered that um, in our church, two of our strongest uh, kind of middle 20s, I didn't ask for their permission to use their name, so I'm not going to use their name, but two of our strongest mid-20s leaders in this church were actually reading Ecclesiastes when they became Christians in college. It's crazy, right? They weren't Christians, but they were both reading this book separately, right? Like reading it, and God kind of used it to bring them to Jesus, that's my prayer for us, those of you who have been listening to this book, and even today, hearing this book, that it would bring you to the end of yourself so you can run to the cross, run to Jesus, empty-handed, saying, I need you. So application, figure out which group you're in, be honest with yourself, and, and talk about it, process it with people that you know, and run to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for this book. I'm thankful for I know, what you've done in my, my life and really my soul as I've been studying this book for the last four or five months. I'm thankful for your word, even a, a book like Ecclesiastes. It's a little strange. It's a little different. It's not set up like a lot of the rest of the books in the scriptures are, but you move in it because it's your word. And I pray that we would trust you today, all of us in this room, no matter who we are, we need, we need humility. We need your spirit to... To, to, to cause us to see that we're the creation and you're the creator. So I pray as we kind of finish our time today that if we need to be comforted, that you would comfort us today. If we need to be convicted today, you would convict us today. Help us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.